Tony Pena was lived in the Dominican Republic. He was born in a slum. Like all kids that grew up in Santa Domingo, he wanted out of that slum, and he knew the ticket for him probably would be baseball. All the kids thought the same thing. And so he would practice baseball, and interestingly, when he was about 18 years old, he was drafted into the farm system of the Boston Red Sox, and then after about two and a half years, he signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates as a catcher. And when he signed, he decided that he'd go back to Santa Domingo and pick up his mother and take her for a ride. It's interesting, you know, he had a teacher growing up who taught him how to play baseball every day after school. The teacher would take him to an open field and there was a little mound of dirt and she would pitch uh, balls. She was a semi-professional softball player and she'd throw strikes. She'd often say, Tony, I'm going to throw it inside. You've got to be able to hit that inside pitch. And he learned to hit it. And that teacher was his mother. And so they're riding in the car in Santa Domingo. They go to a very wealthy neighborhood. He said, Mom, see that house over there? What do you think of that house? She said, oh, Tony, that's a beautiful house. Do you want to buy that one day? He said, nope. I bought it yesterday. Reaching into his pants, he pulled out two keys and said, Mama, here are the keys to your new house. You know, all through history, we've seen remarkable stories of mothers and their sons. And even in the Bible, we have a number of records of tremendous relationships between mothers and sons. For instance, Sarah and Isaac, Rebecca and Jacob, Hannah and Samuel. But of all of the relationships between mother and son, probably the greatest is the relationship between a woman named Mary and her son named Jesus. You see, in ancient Israel, the law said that if a woman was widowed, then her oldest son was responsible for taking care of her. Remember Israel, they talked about the quartet of the vulnerable. There were the orphans, there were the strangers, there were the poor, and then there was the widow. And all through the Bible, if you read it carefully, you'll find that the most vulnerable, the one who's open to the greatest danger is the widow because she has no one to care for her. And the Bible said that the eldest son was responsible. And so isn't it interesting? Here at the end of his life, as Jesus hangs on a cross, he takes time to look down from the cross and to see his mother and to speak to her. There's no son in the Bible who is more obedient to the law and more loving of his mother than Jesus. And John is the one that shows us. So let's dig in. First of all, notice in verse 25 the turbulence of their relationship. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now years ago we were in this text and I chose to look at each one of those four people mentioned by John standing at the cross. But this morning, on this Mother's Day, 
I'd like to look at just one of them, and that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Imagine how it must feel to her to stand there at the cross and watch her son bleed and suffocate to death. I think of her life, it wasn't easy. She was about 12, maybe 13 years old, and an angel comes to her and says, Mary, I've got good news for you. God highly favors you. And to prove it to you, you're going to have a baby, a son, and you're going to name his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. But the trick is, there won't be a man involved. (laughs) I mean, imagine what she must feel with that little announcement. And then less than a year later, she and her husband Joseph take that son into the temple. They're there to fulfill the law of Israel that said that the oldest, the firstborn son of a woman was the Lord's. And the Lord required that they be redeemed. And so she and Joseph come into the temple. They go to the priest. They offer a sacrifice that only the poor would offer two pigeons or two turtle doves. And they offer them up to the Lord as a substitute for their own son. In other words, Lord, You take these pigeons and we'll take what is Yours to be ours. And Luke tells us that there in the temple, something interesting happens. An old priest who is not scheduled to be there that day, the Lord speaks to him and says, you ought to get back to the temple. And when he comes there, he sees this baby in arms. And he doesn't say, oh, what a beautiful baby. He doesn't say, is he sleeping well at night? What's his feeding schedule? Instead, he looks at his parents and he says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And a sign that is to be opposed. And then he looks Mary in the eye and he said, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. Imagine the shock of that. Imagine what you'd think about that. This old priest doesn't talk about the mother and father, doesn't really even talk about the baby. talks about the future. Weeks later, they get word that the king is ready to kill all two-born, two-year-olds and under. And so they take Jesus as an infant and they go all the way to Egypt. That's six months. Imagine the pain of that trip. Imagine the fear and foreboding Imagine the thoughts of her own heart. And then 12 years later, they come back to Jerusalem with a crowd of about a million. It's Passover. They're there to celebrate Passover for that week. And Luke tells us that as they leave the city of Jerusalem with the crowds, they travel a day's journey and they discover that Jesus is not with them. And so they hightail it back to the city and they look for Him for three days. And finally they go to the temple and they see Him there talking with the leaders of Israel. And Mary says to Him, 
Our, your Father and I have sought you with the greatest of sorrows. Do you know what that means? We are worried sick about you. And Jesus said, did you not know that I'd be about my Father's business? Imagine the shock of that. Then 18 years later, they're at a wedding. Weddings went on for seven days and the wine runs out. And Mary goes to Jesus because she's seen Him do some interesting things. And she said, Son, the wine has run out and I love what Jesus says to her. Woman, what does this have to do with Me? My time has not yet come. Imagine that little rebuke. Every time Mary and Jesus are pictured together in the Gospel, it's turbulent. And nowhere is that turbulence any greater than when He's hanging on the cross. Some have said three men suffered on the hill that day. But the truth is, no one suffered other than Jesus. No one suffered more than Mary. Can't you imagine what she's thinking as she's standing there? She remembers 33 years earlier hearing that old priest in the temple say, a sword will pierce your own soul. And here it's happening. Mary had no easy life. Jesus didn't take her pain away. Second, notice not only the turbulence, <clears throat> notice the tribute. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> when Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And there's an exclamation point. He's emphatic. <clears throat> Woman, <clears throat> behold your son. All over the country there are children's ministries that are centered around one particular verse of Scripture. Luke 2.52 And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And at the cross, we see the ultimate expression of that. We see His wisdom, stature, and His favor. You know, Paul talks about Jesus as being the second Adam or the final Adam. And I've always thought that curious because even though it does apply, Jesus and Adam were very different. I mean, think of Adam. He only lived half a life. He wasn't born. He knew nothing of infancy. He knew nothing of adolescence. He had half a life. He never knew the perils of childhood. He never obeyed the fifth commandment. You say, well, it wasn't given then. That's true, but he never had mother and father either. If the Lord had said to him, honor your father and mother, he might have said something like, say what? Think of Adam. When he sins, he sins against one parent, his heavenly father. He, he sins against God alone. For Adam, there's no growth in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But with Jesus, it's a different story. When Jesus was born, He had three parents to obey. His Father, His Mother, and His Heavenly Father. 
And when he obeyed, he didn't obey for just half a life. He obeyed the whole life. And you know it's interesting? The one to show us this is John. Of all four Gospels, there's one that's most theological. There's one that raises up the deity of Christ. From the very first verse of the first chapter of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's agenda is to show us this is not simply a man. This is God in the flesh. There's no birth narratives. There's no narratives about his early life. By chapter 2, he's full grown and doing his ministry. And yet, John is the one who alone tells us about the third word from the cross. John is the only Gospel writer to show us the full extent of Jesus' obedience and the full extent of His love as expressed to His mother. He's the only one to show us that Jesus doesn't just heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and give liberty to the demonized. He's also the God who loves His mother. He's hanging on the cross. He looks down and sees His mother and says, Woman, behold your son. At a time when you and I would think of our own predicament, think of how in the world we got to this place, when self-preservation would be our number one objective, Jesus' objective is to care for His mother. He redefines her relationships. He doesn't say Mary. He says woman. He doesn't say John. He says son. What Jesus is doing is placing her in another family. A family where His beloved disciple would care for her more deeply, more richly, more significantly than any of her natural children. Third, notice the timing. Look at the beginning of verse 27. And He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Again, another exclamation point. Another emphatic declaration. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Somebody has said when you compare Jesus' work on the cross to His work in creating the universe, creating the universe with small potatoes. Do you see what's happening here on the cross? He is locked in the most stupendous undertaking the world has ever known. He is ready to become sin for you and me. He is ready to become that perfect, spotless Lamb who goes all the way to hell so that you and I don't have to go. He is ready to carry the weight of the entire world of sin upon Himself. And yet He takes time to take care of His mother. Now I would remind you that months earlier His mother had come with her other kids. They were at least adolescents, if not adults by now, and they came to a house where Jesus was surrounded by people. Nobody could get in. And Jesus gets word, your mother and brothers are here. And you remember what Jesus said? Who is my mother and brother? 
but those who do the will of my Father. In other words, send them away. Don't let them get in here. They have no clue what I'm doing. And yet here on the cross, at the focal point of human history, at a time when Almighty God is sacrificing Himself for the totality of our sin and to satisfy His total justice, He takes time to care for His mother. I mean, think of this. He takes time to care for his mother. You know, years ago I borrowed a chainsaw from a man who has every tool known. And he keeps every one of them pristine. I asked him, do you have a chainsaw, a big one? He said, oh yeah, I've got a big one. It's a still. I said, can I borrow it? And he said, I'll bring it to you. It shows up in a big orange case, never been opened, at least by me. So I kneel down by that case and I open it very gently and in there is this beautiful chainsaw. I mean, I needed a big chainsaw. In there also are goggles and earmuffs. And I think to myself, I'll use the goggles, but forget the earmuffs. I don't need that. So I took out the earmuffs and I handed them back to him. I said, I won't be needing these. He looked me in the eye and said, God only gave you two of them. I said, okay, I'll use them. You know, God gives us two ears and two eyes, but only one mother. He only gives us one. And Jesus knows that. How important is that relationship to Him? It's so important that in the midst of His cosmic struggle, Jesus looks down and says, John, there's your mother. Mother, there's your son. And then fourth and finally, notice the treasure of this. Look at all of verse 27. Then Jesus said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. You know, when Michelangelo died, they went to his workshop, which was a huge hall in Florence, Italy. And when they opened the door, they were stunned. Because there was not a square foot of space on the floor without an unfinished project. And everybody in Florence who found out were sad. And they must have cried out to the gods or to God, why did you take him before he finished his work? If you know anything about art, you know anything about Michelangelo. He had four names. We only know him by one. He's that famous. Arguably the greatest artist, sculptor, painter, designer, architect, poet the world's ever known. And yet when he died, he left unfinished business. Jesus didn't. There was nothing he left unfinished. And look what John says. From that hour, the disciple took her to his home. He's talking about himself. Now, do you know what that means? 
from that hour, He took Mary away from the cross. She didn't have to watch the rest. He's probably been hanging there for about two hours when He takes her to His house. He spares her all of the agony of watching Jesus die. You know, I think it's interesting that house is mentioned in the very next chapter by John. After Peter and John go to that tomb that's empty and they, they don't know what to make of it, they run to their homes. And you know what that means. When Mary heard that Jesus was no longer in the tomb, it wasn't the women that told her. It wasn't Peter that told her. It wasn't an angel told her. It was his, her son John that told her. You know what that says to me? There's not a single issue in your life that the Lord doesn't care about. You know what that tells me? He knows you better than you know yourself. He made you with two basic needs. To love and be loved and have a sense of worth. And here at the cross, in the third word, Jesus takes care of the pressing need in His mother's heart. This week I read about a man who was in church with his mother and he was 11 years old. His father had just died. So here it is, a mother and 11-year-old son, they're standing in church, it's Easter, and they're singing, Because He Lives. And when they finish, they sit down, and I don't know if this would be in a mother's uh, child-rearing book or not, but <laughs> she turns to him and said, Hey, when I die, I want you to bury me in a red dress and have him sing that song. In less than 20 years, she gets her wish. They have a big memorial service. He makes sure the funeral director dresses her in her favorite red dress. And then they sing because he lives twice. A week later, he's in South America. He's an evangelist. He's knocking on doors, sharing the Gospel. He's out in the streets preaching the Gospel. And for six nights, there's no response even though he speaks very good Spanish, there's absolutely no response. So it's late one night, Saturday night, about 11 o'clock. He's in Caracas. And all at once, a teenage boy comes up to him, about 18, and says in Spanish, you were talking about Jesus. Can you tell me more? Within 20 minutes, they're both on their knees on the sidewalk and he's giving his life to Christ. As soon as they get up, the young man leaves. The evangelist has one impulse. He wants to call his mother. So he goes to a phone booth on the street. He picks up the receiver and starts to dial and remembers his mother's not here. He begins to cry. I've been here six days, one convert. I want to tell my mother and she's not here. I've got no mother, got no father. And he said, to be honest with you, I felt like a complete failure. And as he's standing there crying, he gains some composure and he sees a man 
walking down the street and he expects him to pass him, but instead the man stops and he said, you're sad, I'd like to play a song for you. And he notices he's got a guitar on his back. And he said, to be honest, I want him to say, leave me alone. But instead I say, okay, go ahead. And then the guy says to me, what would you like to hear? And I'm thinking, I don't want to hear anything, but what do you know? He said, I know everything. So I say to him, pick something. He takes his guitar and turns it around and begins to play because he lives. And at that moment, the man said, I knew, the Lord knew every need in my life. I've got no father. I've got no mother. But I've got someone who loves me more than they ever could. And because He lives, I can go home in joy. Two weeks ago, we said that every one of these words speaks to a deep need in our life. The first one is the word of forgiveness. We all must hear it. The second is the word of salvation. Oh, how we need that word. But the third word is, woman, behold your son. On the cross, Jesus takes care of His mother's deepest earthly need. To love and be loved and have a sense of worth. He redefines her relationships. You know what that means? He does the same thing for everyone that He loves. There's not a need in your life the Lord doesn't know about. There's not a need in your life that the Lord isn't willing to meet. You don't believe me? Look at the third word as He's hanging on the cross, ready to be tormented, He looks at His mother and His beloved disciple and He puts them together. He made you to be loved. He made you to love. He made you to know you're significant. And on the cross, He proves it. Think about that. Amen.